Father, we thank you that uh, the fountain that's filled with the blood of Jesus Christ uh, is completely adequate to remove all of the debt of our sin. Father, we come to you this morning because Jesus Christ has made a way for us. We thank you that uh, you have revealed that to us. You have not left it uh, hidden. We are not confused. We know that we can approach your throne boldly and come with confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we come into your presence this morning, we would come with boldness and also with humility. I pray, Father, that we would listen to the voice of your Spirit and their hearts would be receptive as you teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. I do think um, being religious is important because it gives you a pathway that um, has kind of been like preset for you. So, I mean, you can always find your own path, but I mean, it's like basically morals that you can follow to like make yourself a better person. I would say religion has brought about many positive changes in society and in the community as a whole, I would say religion has been a positive effect. Um, I just think it should have, like, just trying to help people better themselves. I would say it's a lot about self-improvement, more so than you have to follow this rule, you have to do it this way, these people are bad, that's bad, judge these people. It'd be more about self-improvement and making yourself a better person and maybe a better community as a whole. What can make it good is when a lot of people come together and they see religion as helping others and bettering themselves and society to reach the full potential of the group. Maybe some religions tend to be uh, a little bit more extremist than others. They, uh, they tend to, uh, some religions tend to be a little bit more my way or no way. I honestly believe it's the ability to accept other people and to live close to the values that humans should be living with. I don't really know all those values, but the one that's probably more acceptant and helping of the community, whereas others might put on judgment to the others. So. a better religion, but I just, this is what I feel is right. The underlying foundations of every religion are, of every religion is the same. Uh, it's kind of just uh, love between men. I don't think religions can be better than others because, I mean, it's all basically trying to improve yourself as a person no matter what. As long as you try to be the best person you can, there's no way a religion can be better than another. I think all religions stem from the same idea that people need a higher authority to, you know, account for and like answer to. I believe each individual religion, they all have different histories. Each one preaches this is how this is how God talks to people. And then the other religions like, no, this is how God does. But overall, they do answer the same fundamental question of where we came from and what we're doing here. Yes, there are obvious differences, like different names that you call people or higher deities, but I think that fundamentally the idea behind them and the things that they believe in are the same. In the beginning, I think they were all the same religion, just different historical backgrounds to lead them to what they believe in now. I think the fundamental differences are the different pathways that you can take for each religion, because I mean, they're not all the same, the worship and the prayers and just the their own gods and their own saints and such, um, I mean, they're all different, so I mean... They're different, but I mean, they should still be striving to bring the same thing to bring them up to their own heaven and or paradise or nirvana or something. 
probably noticed that everybody has an opinion about religion. That's because mankind is, by nature, religious. According to one researcher, there are over 4,200 religions in the world. Uh, within Christianity, there are, it is estimated, about 34,000 denomination, denominations or sects. It's because for all of time, mankind has been religious. This idea is only recent, the idea of a non-religious person. You look at the whole course of human history, people have always been religious. However, the natural fallen inclination of man toward religion is not as God would set it. Uh, The natural inclination toward religion, mankind initiated religion, is filled with uh, lies. Satan would want to use religion to actually move people away from God and away from a true relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So what is true religion? Well, not surprisingly, God has something to say about it. If you want to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, we're going to look at the topic this morning of true religion. Isaiah chapter 58, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways, just like a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. They say, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? First thing that Isaiah is going to tell us, or the Lord is going to tell us through Isaiah, is that true religion begins with truth. True religion begins with truth. The people to whom Isaiah is writing in chapter 58 are experiencing a sense of separation from God, which is not surprising. Remember, Isaiah is now writing in chapter 58 to a future generation, a generation that is actually living in exile. They have been removed from the promised land, and as they think back about Israel and their city, Jerusalem, they remember that their city's walls have been knocked down. The temple has been destroyed. There is no worship going on in Jerusalem, and it's difficult for them to worship where they are in Babylon. They feel distance from God. That's a problem for them. Whatever we're faced with a problem is a natural human inclination. Fix the problem to take the initiative and try to solve it. Now, uh, this morning, I don't want to speak for all husbands sitting in the room. I'm just going to speak for myself, okay? So if you can relate to this, great. If you can't, that's fine too. But sometimes my wife will bring me a problem. And I'm listening to her problem. That's what I I do. I'm a good husband. I listen. I'm listening to the problem and I'm listening. I'm listening. And then, you know, something happens partway through the description of the problem. Really, it's almost always before she's done describing the problem, I have a solution. Or maybe I have several solutions. And so I interrupt her and I begin to tell her how to solve her problem. And, you know, it's crazy. But whenever I do that, she's not thankful. (laughs) She doesn't say, oh, thank you. Thank you for your your many wonderful solutions. She stops me and says, no, I I don't want a solution from you. I just want you to. See, that's right. Listen, see, 50% of our audience understood the right answer to that question. (laughs) I just want you to listen. Just listen to me. Don't solve it. Just listen. Proverbs, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. I think he's talking about marriage. He's talking about that. (laughs) Husband solving wives' problems. He's also talking about religion. Man's solution to his problem of separation. 
It's human religion. The mankind looks at the problem and says, I'm separate from God. There must be something wrong with God. I need to get God's attention so he'll pay attention to what's going on in my life and he'll give me what I want from him. In other words, human reasoning arrives at this solution. Religion is attempting to draw near to God on our own terms and for our own selfish motivations. Notice what he says in verse 2. Yet my people seek me day by day. They delight to know my ways just as if they were a nation that has done righteousness. Just as if they were a nation that has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. They want me to do right by them. They want me to be near to them, but they want it on their own terms. That's the nature of human religion. Uh, Over spring break, Tristy and I went on vacation. We celebrated our anniversary and we went to Washington, D.C. One of the uh, days of our trip, we visited the National Cathedral, which is absolutely an amazing piece of architecture. It's uh, European Gothic. And we learned on our tour that there's no steel in the structure at all. It's the the last cathedral that has been built, apparently, with no steel in the structure, just stone upon stone. Sixth largest cathedral in the world, second largest cathedral in the United States. It's amazing. It's incredibly beautiful. While we were there, there was a a worship service going on in one of the the many chapels. So we went downstairs into the basement into, I think it was the Bethlehem Chapel, and we wanted to see a, a worship service at the National Cathedral. So we're sitting there and we're listening and... Um, you know, it's really a, a, a beautiful, small structure within a huge structure. I love uh, the stone architecture. I love the, the live room. You can hear everything coming off the stone. Uh, the priest was wearing this really beautiful robe, which, you know, I'm not, I wasn't tempted. <laughs> You're not going to see me in a robe. But it was just, the whole thing was impressive, you know. It's really impressive. But uh, I face an occupational hazard. Whenever I hear someone preaching, I think, what would I say? If I was standing there, right, you, you may not feel the same thing. It may not rise up from you right now. You may not be saying, what would I say if I could preach in place of Brian, Isaiah chapter 58? But I always feel that every time I hear someone speaking. So I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, what would I say? What would I say? Well, if I was preaching at the National Cathedral that receives almost 500,000 visitors a year, I don't know all those people. So chances are some of them don't know Jesus Christ. They're people from all over the United States, all over the world. If they're coming to my worship service, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to present the gospel and I'm going to make it incredibly clear that they know how to begin a relationship with God. And then I'm going to make sure that the ones who are believers, they may not be in really solid churches. They may not know how to grow in a relationship with God. I'm going to make sure they know how to grow in a relationship with God. So I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm waiting for the gospel. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And if you know me at all, and you can imagine, I'm having a really hard time physically sitting still because the gospel was not presented. Somebody could sit there, listen to the whole service, walk out, and never know how to begin a relationship with Christ. They sit through the whole service and never know how to grow in a relationship with Christ. And at one point, I just had to get up. I just couldn't sit any longer. It broke my heart. There was religion everywhere. Good looking religion. But there was not truth. Isaiah chapter 29, the prophet addresses this. He says, speaking the voice of the Lord, 
This people draw near to me with their words and they honor me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In the New Testament, the classic example of this is the Pharisees. Jesus talks about the Pharisees. He talks to the Pharisees a lot because they are involved in empty religion. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That is, there's no truth. What is on the outside is not the same as what's on the inside. That's hypocrisy. So he says, woe to you. What does that sound like in the Old Testament? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Sounds a lot like Isaiah. Jesus is speaking a prophetic word to them. He says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you who are the most religious in your culture, you're the the experts supposedly at knowing God. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. That is, you take a tenth of a portion of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. What he's saying is, it's okay, it's fine if you want to take a a tenth of a portion of a dill seed and give it to the Lord. That's okay, that's fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong wrong with religious practice, but if you've lost the the essential truth, the heart of the matter, it's all a complete waste of time. You've neglected justice, righteousness, holiness, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, the real essence of the nature and character of God, the way that God wants to be approached by people. There's no truth. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, Uh, As God would say to the people in Isaiah's day, you feel distant from me because you are distant from me. The problem is not with God. The problem's with us. Matter of fact, Isaiah's going to begin chapter 59 by saying this. He's going to say, your iniquity has created a separation between you and your God. Human reasoning looks at the problem, this this sense of God is not near, God is not listening, and says the problem must be with God. I've got to figure out a way to manipulate God. And God says, no, the problem is is with you. Look at me in chapter 58, verse 1. The Lord says, cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Declare to them that there is a problem, but the problem's not with me, the problem is with them. And God is urgent about it because God loves us so much, he wants that sense of separation to be fixed between us and God. So he says to the prophet, he says, cry out loudly, uh, blow the trumpet. This is the, the shofar, the, the ram's horn that the priest would blow to call people into assembly. And when they heard the ram's horn, it meant Stop. Whatever you're doing is not as important as what God is calling to you. Stop whatever you're doing. You're in the middle of the field and you're planting your crops. Stop planting your crops. You're in the middle of a meal. Stop eating. Stop whatever you're doing and pay attention because God is calling to you. That's what the sound of the horn meant. Joel chapter 2, the prophet said it like this. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. It's time for the people to pay attention. 
to their relationship with me. And so he says, get everybody, get the elders, get the children, get the nursing infants, get everybody. As a matter of fact, get the groom and the bride. I know they're getting ready for their wedding day, but nothing is as important as doing business with God. So postpone your wedding. Wow. Can you imagine the most important day in their lives up to this point? And God says, it's nothing compared to doing business with me. Stop the wedding. Stop everything. And get right with me. And the way that you do that is you pay attention to truth. There's a problem and the problem's with you. It's with sin in your lives. It's with poor motives. You're trying to manipulate me with your religious practices. Let's deal with that. You know, it's interesting in the book of Isaiah, there are four major sins that are addressed. There is uh, the sin of idolatry we talked about a few weeks ago. There's pride. There's false alliances. They protect themselves with these foreign alliances. And then the fourth is false worship or hypocritical worship. And interestingly, the first area of sin that God deals with with his people is hypocritical worship. Isaiah chapter 1. Turn back there with me. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. This is the first issue that God deals with with his people. He says, hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of God. You people of Gomorrah. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't exist any longer. He's talking about his own people. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered in blood. Yes, you feel alienated from me, but it's because of sin in your lives. So please stop worshiping or stop this thing that you call worship. Because it's false religion. Just stop. Don't bring me any more offerings. Because there's sin in your midst. And how does he know that there's sin in their midst? It's because of the way that they're treating the people around them. Now turn back with me again to chapter 58. And notice specifically the sin that he's addressing. Second half of verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, when you're supposed to be worshiping, you find your own desire and you drive hard all your workers. Why? Why are they driving their workers hard on a day of fasting? Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. Why are they striking and fighting and battling with one another and driving hard their workers on a day of a fast, a day that is supposed to be set aside as a day of the Lord? What's going on here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been reading back through the book of James. And uh, I think that James is about this topic of true religion. I think if you, you want to summarize the whole book, what he's talking about is pure religion, true religion, religion that is pleasing to God. And James addresses this idea. What, what's going on? This, this fighting, this contention, this driving others on a day of worship. Chapter 4, he says this. 
What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, the reason that you're fighting and there's conflict among you is because you're only focused on yourself. That's why we fight. We're not getting what we want, and so we fight. And what the Lord is saying to these people through Isaiah is, you're fighting on a day of fasting Because all of your religion is about yourself. Do we do that? Do we come to God for what we can get out of God? I'm going to ask you a question and uh, it's it's rhetorical. Don't don't answer me. Just keep it to yourself. But why did you come this morning? Have you ever ever come to church and, and walked out the door and said, I didn't get anything out of that. <laughs> Hopefully it never happens here. You ever said that to yourself? Though? I didn't get anything out of that. As if that were the point. We come to church so we get something out of it or get something out of God. Or we go through our religious practices. We, we went to church. We, got, we afflicted ourselves. We didn't fast this morning, but we made ourselves get up early. Well, this group didn't. First group did. This. <laughs> Maybe you did skip a meal. Or you read the Bible extra this week or you prayed extra long this week so that God would be obligated to give you something. We do, don't we? We go through our religious practices for what we can get from God. So they drive hard their workers. (laughs) I'm going to take a day off and fast before the Lord because I love him so much. But you need to get to work in my fields. Because really I'm about myself. And what Isaiah is saying is that that's not true religion. True religion is based upon truth. Truth about ourselves. Truth about our motivations. Truth about God. Second, he's going to say true religion aims to please God. That is, true religion isn't thinking, what can I get from God? But what does God want from me? What pleases God? Look with me in verse 5. He says, is it... A fast like this, which I choose, day for a man to humble himself, is it for bowing one's head like a reed, for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this fast the one where you're oppressing workers and you're fighting with one another? Will I call this fast and even this thing that you're doing right now, is that a pleasing day to the Lord? Is that a pleasing day to me? He says, no. It's interesting, in this section, short chapter, 14 verses, there are three synonyms for the word pleasure or delight. They're used eight times. 14 verses. What this chapter is about is what pleases God. God's telling people, this is what pleases me. And since God is God and he made all things and he's in charge, he gets to say, this is the way that I want you to come to me. Come to me like this. Since we live in times in which the New Testament has been written, it's made clear to us. The way that you come to God is the way that he has prescribed, and that is through Jesus. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to be near to God, come through me. 
Jesus Christ is exclusive. He's the only way. If there were multiple ways that we could get to God, then the death of Christ was a waste. Jesus says, no, I'm it. I'm the only way. But I am open to all, to absolutely everyone. Recently, a theological discussion has been stirred up again. A guy, a pastor named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. He's a very popular pastor. He's all over the internet. People are watching him all over the world. He wrote a book called Love Wins that basically proclaims that God allows people to come from a variety of different places. Good people don't go or can't go to hell. God is not like that. It's called inclusivism. All roads lead to God. It's not a new idea. It's not a new debate. It's not a new discussion. But uh, every generation needs to have it stirred up so they can figure out what do we really believe? Is hell real? Is heaven real? Is there just one way? And is it Jesus Christ? I will tell you, Christ makes it very clear. It's just him. But he's open to all. The moment that you believe him, he says, I remove that debt of sin. I remove it permanently. You have a relationship with me that cannot be harmed. And you have eternal life. You will live forever in my presence, but I am the only way. And he doesn't apologize for it. That is the stumbling block of the gospel. That, that's the point we've got to drive home. There's just one way to approach God, and it's through Jesus Christ. Just one way to worship God, and that's through Jesus Christ. God says, that is what pleases me. Now, chapter 58 The Lord doesn't talk about all the different aspects of worship that please him. In a few weeks, we're going to talk more broadly about worship. What he's focused on in chapter 58 is the evidence that our worship is pleasing to God. And what he's going to say is the evidence of true worship or true religion is how we treat one another. The evidence of the the genuineness of, Uh, And the strength of our relationship with God is the way that we treat one another. Specifically, how do we treat those who are vulnerable among us? Look at chapter 58, verse 6. God says, Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. That is, you will have that nearness of God. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness. Your gloom will become like the midday. In other words, true religion inevitably results in compassion for others. That is, the more that we share the heart of God... (laughs) When we come on his terms, the more that we'll love the things that God loves. And God has a a very deep and special place in his heart for those who cannot care for themselves, for those who are vulnerable. Over and over in scripture, you see God's concern for the orphan, for the widow, and for the poor. Again, let me take you back to the book of James. James summarizes it like this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is simply this. To visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He says, this is it. 
Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unstained by the world. Don't live according to the world's standards. And when James says visit, we know he means not just show up at their door, but bring something with you, right? When you see a brother who's cold, give him something to wear. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. That's pure religion. For those who are vulnerable in our midst, there are are three specific areas that Isaiah addresses. Okay, three phrases that kind of float throughout this section. To loosen the chains of injustice, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to divide your bread with the hungry. What does he mean? Well, to loosen the chains of injustice means that as Christians, we should be working very hard to make sure that people have their fundamental human rights guarded in our culture. Those are the chains of injustice. We need to be, as Christians, paying attention to making sure those are broken. People's fundamental rights, their fundamental opportunities, those things are guarded and protected in our culture. To undo the bands of the yoke, uh, that's uh, the yoke like was laid upon an, an ox's neck. That is, make sure that people in our society, in our culture, are not treated like animals, they're not treated like property, but they're treated with dignity because they are made in the image of God, regardless of their race regardless of their gender, regardless of their education or intelligence, regardless of anything about them. That they're not treated like property. Divide your bread with the hungry, that's pretty obvious. Those who cannot feed themselves, that we make sure that they're fed. Okay, remembering that in biblical times, people were poor, not because of a lack of um, diligence, okay? What he's talking about, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, about the poor is not the lazy, Paul talks about the lazy. He says, if any man will not work, neither let him eat. The poor in Old Testament, New Testament, those who worked day to day. Okay, day to day, they made enough money to feed themselves and their family for that day. So if they were injured, what happened? Well, they'd have to go without food. If they were injured and couldn't work for a day or two or a week, well, their family might begin to go hungry. If it was longer, their family might starve. They might get to a point where they couldn't provide for their families. And so in biblical culture, Old Testament, New Testament, Christian culture, the church, those who cannot provide for themselves, we're called upon to provide. We're not overlooking unethical behavior or immoral behavior, but for those who need provision and those who need protection, we provide for them. We protect them. One of the greatest measures of the moral strength of a culture is what does it do for those who are vulnerable and cannot protect themselves? That is why in our culture, the greatest shames on this society is what we do to the unborn. Okay? Abortion is such a great sin in our culture because the unborn have no protection that they can offer to themselves. We have to be, if we believe that life begins at conception, then we have to be protecting their lives. Okay? And as Christians, we need to stand for these rights. Now, I realize that this, this whole topic of social justice has fallen on really bad times from time to time among evangelical Christians. The reason being that, that people who are more liberal in their theological persuasion, they begin to do all of the care for the needy and the homeless and the poor, and they separated it from the truth of the gospel. So they're just feeding, but they're not addressing spiritual needs. And so evangelicals largely got, got pretty skittish about taking care of immediate physical concerns. But in my mind, 
Christians, we should be right on the forefront of taking care of the vulnerable, protecting the vulnerable, and providing for those who are in need in the name of Jesus Christ. We should be feeding the poor, but doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Connecting the food to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we just feed them, but we don't care for their spiritual separation from God, we have not done them good, real good. But as Christians, we should not be afraid to be the ones who are right at the middle in in our town, in our culture, in our community, in our society. We're right at the forefront of taking care of the vulnerable and the needy. Because that is the heart of God. And what Isaiah is saying here is that's evidence that we are worshiping according to the way that God would have us worship. Because this is what God is concerned for. And the more and more we care about the things that God cares about, we'll care about the orphan and the widow. One more thing that Isaiah points out is this. True religion results in true pleasure. Look at me in verse 13. He says, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you honor it, desisting from your own ways and from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Notice notice he's turned from fasting to the Sabbath because the point is not Fasting or the Sabbath, the point is what pleases God. The Sabbath means literally stop. The the verb means to cease. Stop doing your own thing and take this as a gift from God, this opportunity to reorient your life and be reminded God is in the center of life. And what he loves is the center of life. So I need to Shabbat. I need to stop. And it really doesn't matter, Paul tells us, whether you do it on Saturday or Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or you have multiple times throughout the week, that doesn't matter. But the principle of stopping and being reminded that God is the center of life is a gift from God to you. So he says, call it a delight. And when you do, this will happen. Verse 14, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That is, You will take delight in the Lord, not in what he can give to you. You'll take delight in him, just in who he is. That's true religion. As we close, uh, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion this morning, which is a great reminder of the sacrifice that Christ made, that he did not regard his own pleasure. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we are served, I'd like for us to take a few moments and just meditate quietly upon the example of Jesus Christ who didn't come to serve himself. And let's ask the Lord to bring to our minds how can we serve others and reflect the very heart of God, particularly for those who are vulnerable and needy in our culture. Would the men come forward and serve us, please? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. This bread represents the physical suffering that I will have to undergo because of your sins. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's not like the old covenant, it's a new one. And it's powerful because it's in my blood. It removes your sins forever. Let's take the cup together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that 
it removed the debt of our sins, and we thank you also, Father, that it provides for us an example for how our, our, our hearts can be changed and we can become like Jesus. We can become preoccupied with you and freed from ourselves and preoccupied with you and the things that really concern you. And I do pray, Father, that you'd stir up our hearts for those who are hurting and, and lonely and needy in our midst, those who uh, need protection, those who need provision. And I pray, Father, we would do all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord pour out his richest blessings on you. I exhort you this week to look for how you can bless someone else, particularly those who are are broken, who are hurting, who are vulnerable, who are in need. God bless you. Have a great week.